Welcome to Pep Talk and Pickleball. I'm your host, Jill Lewis. Today, I am bringing you a fantastic interview that I had recently with Michelle Taylor. Michelle is a mental health therapist and a pickleball addict. Sounds familiar, right? And our conversation was not only inspiring, but I learned so much from how to improve quickly with your pickleball game to couples counseling with detailed step-by-step instructions on helping your important relationships. Plus, how nutrition, movement, and sleep has changed Michelle's life after she was diagnosed with MS. Michelle is full of wonderful information, and I am so excited for you to hear this one. So here we go. Okay, well, welcome back to Pep Talk and Pickleball. I'm your host, Jill Lewis. I'm really excited this week to bring a special guest. Her name is Michelle Taylor. She is a mental health therapist and a pickleball addict just like me. So, <laughs> Michelle, thank you so much for joining us today. No problem. Thanks for having me. So Michelle is joining me from California, and we were just discussing about the fact that it has been raining in Southern California. What'd you say for like the last two months? <laughs> yes, for the last two months. This is going to be the 12th, what do they call it, As- atmospheric river. <laughs> oh my gosh. So that is cutting into her pickleball time. So that's oh, not yeah. cool. <laughs> pickleball players out here are not happy. <laughs> that's right. I can't imagine. Right now in sunny Florida is extremely sunny and yeah, I've been playing a lot. So that would make me crazy. But when I go back to Illinois in the month of it'll be late April, that's kind of a rainy season there. So that's I'll be feeling I'll be feeling your pain. <laughs> well, I reached out to Michelle because I saw her posting in one of the pickleball groups over on Facebook. So there's a lot of different pickleball forums out there and I find them so fascinating. They're either asking a question or people are just commenting and it really caught my eye because you haven't been playing pickleball for that long, right? No, only a year. I mean, and what level are you playing at right now? Four or five. I mean, you you guys hearing this? She's a four or five. I I might be being generous with saying I'm a three five, but I'm pretty sure I'm a three five. I've started playing in during the pandemic. So let's say fall of 2020 is when I really started getting into it. So I have to know this before anything else. Like how in the world did you get so good so fast? Okay. I, I like all pickleball addicts are playing nonstop. I, in fact, I am a mental health therapist and I think I've moved all of my clients around pickleball hours <laughs> because I play about four, three or four times a week. If I'm not playing tournaments, I'll play five times a week around three hours a day. And when I'm not playing, I'm drilling. I bought a top spin pro I'm, I'm practicing on walls, but what really did it was through 2020 um, before I even knew about pickleball, I have an Oculus, which is the Facebook version of the via, uh, virtual reality. You know, you wear it on your head oh. and on there is a ping pong app, a ping pong game. And people are so skeptical about virtual reality that it's not very realistic, but this ping pong game is so realistic. The touch on it and everything is so realistic and it has a ball machine on there. And when you play ping pong, I've never really been a ping pong player, but I started playing it through COVID because it was a good way to just get some activity going. And one of the things about the ball machine on there, one, you don't have to shag the balls, it's virtual, but two, it's very much like playing in the kitchen. So when you play ping pong, it's very much the the kitchen play. So it's a lot of drop shots. It's a lot of, you know, cranking it when it comes at you. It's a lot of fast hands. And I, I got really good at the paddle touch on that game. 
And Interesting. once I learned about pickleball, I actually learned about pickleball in 2021. Yeah. In the fall of 2021, one of my friends invited me out and I actually had a broken right arm, right, right hand. I had broken it on a stupid bouncy house <laughs> over the summer and I had a broken right hand and I went out there. I, I grew up playing volleyball, basketball, so I'm pretty athletic, but I've never played a racket sport. So my hand-eye coordination was a little bit off because with volleyball and basketball, you're hitting the ball on your hand. And so my eyes see the ball going to the hand, not you know, a foot out with a paddle on it, which was a different feel for me, like just the reaction time and and knowing that I can reach a thing that I used to not be able to reach in volleyball because my, my arm was my width, my span, you know, right. now I have this foot extra on the end of my hand that I have. So that was a big adjustment, but I actually started playing left-handed because I had a broken right hand and, you know, it was 3-0 play, you know, lobbying and, you know, just trying to get it over, not really anything fancy, um, but just started getting addicted, playing rec, going like three, four times a week with the same group. They were all 3-0 players, maybe 3-5 in there. They were looking really good. Started pairing up with this one player that I saw she had potential. And we just did our first tournament together and we were just hooked from there on. And we had the same goals. We started going to clinics. We started going, getting coaching and lessons and stuff. And once we started, I actually went to this thing called Pickapalooza in Phoenix and they aren't doing it anymore, but I went there. It was in March of 2022. And I remember meeting all these pros there. I didn't even know who the pros were because I wasn't that into pickleball, but I remember going there and meeting all these pros, you know, like the Dawson's and AJ Kohler was there. There was a coach there and she was a pro, but she was more of a coach there that I introduced myself to. And she said that she lived in my area and she was, she was coaching and doing clinics. So you know, after I left Phoenix, I contacted her, got, got in touch with her. She's a five something player and just started going to her clinics and, and asking her, how did she become pro? And she said she got, she went pro in about 18 months. And so just knowing that that's possible to do it in that short amount of time, I'm competitive. I'm like, well, if you did it in 18 months, I want to do it even sooner. And how did you do it? And she said, I just played, 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 pushed myself in tournaments. And so me and this girl that we met in rec, we just started playing all these tournaments together, starting at 3-0. And then we went to 3-5 and kept winning, 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 moved ourselves to 4-0, had to, you know, adjust to the 4-0 group because that was tough because it's a different game going from 3-5 to 4-0. It's no longer, you know, whack-a-mole and then they lob it and then you could slam it, which is what I was really good with volleyball. In 4-0, it's more about the short game and the and the kitchen play and slowing it down. And um, we would just, you know, practice that in rec play over and over and over. It was literally conversations we would have on our drives to go play. Okay, today we're going to work on backhand dinks, and that's all we're going to work on. She was really working on getting a two-handed backhand. You know, I didn't want to do two-hand. I'm a one-hander. But every time we would go to rec, it wasn't about winning anymore. It was about working on a shot, working on a thing working on a stroke and whether it goes in or not, be aggressive with it and just try it and just get more, more and more comfortable with it. So we did that in rec and then it translated over into tournament play where we started, you know, doing those things we had practiced in tournament play, getting more confident and tournaments are a whole other beast because you're having to wait in between matches, which you get cold and you have to warm up again. Just the different types of competitors out there, or, you know, people call things in out when they're really in. It's just a whole other beast there. That would rattle me so bad. Okay, I have to back up though. You, so you were playing with your left hand. Then when your right hand got healed, then did you go back to your right hand? Yeah, yeah. 
what helped what helped in playing left hand is actually in doing two-handed backhand things they say you should play left-handed just to get that feel and that that movement and it will help you with a two-handed backhand stroke with thinking and with hitting backhands so it actually it was really helpful and it it got my feet to the ball better right because when you play with your dominant hand you kind of just make up for not getting your feet there but with the left hand you really got to get your feet planted and get there and then you make the stroke even though it's a horrible lobby stroke with your bad hand (laughs) but it was really it was really cool and sometimes I still go back to playing left-handed especially when I'm playing lower levels like three oh three fives there's always a way to challenge yourself no matter what level you play at I what bothers me the most about getting higher and higher and higher is there's less and less groups to play with Mm -hmm. there's less there's it's just a lot clickier once the higher you get it's clickier and it's hard to get into those groups but I find myself challenging myself in other ways in playing with lower level players by either playing left-handed and getting used to those motions, moving my feet differently or working on the soft game with them. And, you know, even though they whack it at you to try to reset it to the kitchen and stuff like that, there's always something you work on with any, any level of player. And a lot of people don't like that. They want to play high level and they stay at high level and they don't care for the lower level people, but I've found a good balance. It did take a while like mentally to get there but I found a good balance in not really caring who I play against I can always find something to practice with them it's funny what when you talk about the clickiness of it because I've noticed that when I go up to the Pickleplex up in Puna Gorda I've had a hard time breaking into a group there and I'm asking people like well you know, when are do you all go play just in open play, like in rec play? And you can't really get like a good answer. And I'm thinking, oh, I don't mm-hmm. know that they really want me to go up there, but I just keep, I just keep plugging away. You know, I just keep showing yeah. up. I just keep showing up going, oh, these, these women, I'm going to make them love me. <laughs> oh, 100%. <laughs> a lot of new people that hear me talking about pickleball so much and they're like, it sounds so fun. I really want to learn how to play and how, you know, how do you, how do you get into it? And I'm like, you just put yourself out there. And that's what Mm -hmm. I did when I first started. I literally inserted myself into a teacher's group. I knew one of the ladies really well. And I was just like, when are you guys going? Like, I want to play. Like, this is something I want to do. And you just have to put yourself out there and be open to just playing with whoever's there. So I think it's cool that you're playing with, with all levels, especially. And that tip to, if you're playing with a level down, work on one specific thing, like resetting the ball, because I played with, uh, there's a woman here that's probably a four or five and, and she dinks me to death. I mean, she just crushes mm-hmm. me on it. She gets me moving. She never moves. She takes up so much space and she's not a big person. I'm like, I can't get it away from her. And she's shuffling me. Yeah. She's in control. I'm just like this puppet on a string that she's just making me move all over the place. And yeah, I can't wait to get to that level of, but I worked on that in my lesson today, working on, you know, trying to move the ball around more, not dinking with the purpose, not just dinking it just to return it for the sake of returning it, but dinking with the purpose. That's another thing. I'm a mental health therapist and part of the mental health part of it and the, the, the psychology part of it is yeah. Dinking with purpose versus a narrative that would always go in my head when I was really insecure was don't mess up, don't mess up, don't mess up. And I I found myself constantly saying that as I was dinking, and then I would end up messing up. It's like, you know, deer in headlights, you're going to go wherever the lights are. And if you're telling yourself, don't mess up, don't mess up, it's going to happen. And I've had to really work on my narrative as I'm playing, like hit to the corner, hit to the corner, or 
you know, go inside, inside, outside foot, stuff like that, that's more productive in making your body follow what your mind is saying versus don't mess up, don't mess up, don't be the one to mess it up. <laughs> I remember feeling that all the time. I am vigorously nodding my head um, because that is exactly how I play. And I was just telling the gentleman that I took the lesson from today. I said, I have such a mindset of don't mess up, don't make a mistake. And in rec play, because I'm constantly playing with a new partner all the time, I don't want to make a mistake for them either. You know, when we get out there and play, there's shots that I need to practice more and be more aggressive with. I, I don't do it because I don't want to hit it out of bounds or, you know, I yep. don't want to hit it long. And I think to myself, oh, I need to, it's so good that you have a partner that you could just, and or that you just don't care. And that you're like, I'm just going to work on these things. And just, mm -hmm. it's just, it's just a rec game. Like who cares? Yep. You don't have to win every game. It'd be yep. better off. And that's probably why you got so much better so fast because you had strategy and what you were working on, not just mm -hmm. trying to win every little rec game you played in. Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was very helpful. And I find now, the partner that I was playing with, she's actually moving on to 5-0. She's really, really good. And you'll probably see her on the circuit soon. I'm really proud of her. Um, I'm taking a little slower of a step because I'm a little, I'm 10 years older. So I'm a little going a little slower. So part of it is I find this is another psychological part of it is finding new partners that you jive with and that can allow you that freedom to practice some things and not mixed is really hard for me. I find mixed really hard. Because the male female dynamic is just way different than the female female dynamic. It's just different. And I, I don't know if that's my own stuff where I feel a little more insecure playing with a male. It's hard for me to find a male that I feel really comfortable playing with because I always feel like I'm letting them down or I'm the weaker player. That dynamic is really, really different versus in women's, you kind of take role different roles on who's going to take over in this part of the game or who's going to you know, step up in this part of the game with mixed, it's different. I get the feel. I'm hoping it's different when you get higher and higher and higher, but that's, that's the struggle I've had with, with mixed so far. I think it's different too. And I think the reaction, this is something that I've kind of started letting the men around me know that is, this is what they're doing is that they'll make a comment like, Oh, who ticked you off today? Like if I smash a ball, Oh, who made you mad? Or or um, one guy, he's jokingly saying like, oh, Jill's a bully, you know, chill. If, if I accidentally like hit him with the ball or, you know, I'm never like trying to in wreck, try to hit somebody. But a lot of times that just happens. You know, you get hit with the ball and he's a huge guy. He's like, Jill's a bully. And I'm like, I have never heard you say that to a guy. I've never heard you call another guy a bully for hitting you with the ball. And they have hit you way harder. And I've never heard a man say another to another man like, oh, who ticked you off today? And, yeah. You know, it's like, <laughs> OK, guys. So it's definitely a different I don't know, a different vibe out there. And I do have one partner here. He was a former hockey coach and he just has a really good coaching mentality when I'm partners with him. And I've told him before, I said, you know, I play the best when I play with you because you just have a really positive, like you, I, I'm more relaxed when I'm playing with you. If I make mistakes, I don't, I'm not like apologizing all the time to him. Yeah. <laughs> just tell I'm a more relaxed player, therefore a much better player. When I get tense is, is when I start to really mess up. When you get permission from your partner, I don't care if it's mixed or same sex partners, when you get permission to just play your game or to be aggressive and it's okay to make mistakes, it takes off so much pressure. You play so much better. And I and I almost think I'm like so close to writing a psychological pickleball book because I find so much of the stuff that I do in couples counseling 
effective as pickleball players in, in partnerships to be able to talk about how to give a good criticism, to be able to talk about how to not get defensive, how to not have contempt for each other and how to not get stonewalled and flooded, which are the four horsemen of the Gottmans, which um, when yes. you understand the antidotes to those and you can do those appropriately in a, in a partnership, I don't care if it's your own spouse or a relationship in general, with pickleball partners, it really does help when you give permission to each other to be able to give a gentle criticism in a, in a good way, you know, that, but in a positive, like affirming way, rather than a, I'm going to tear you down because you're making us lose way. Right. Exactly. This is a good segue into the Gottman. What do you call that? Like the Gottman therapy or usually it's got the, the Gottman theory. So they the have Gottman this theory. whole theory of, of couples counseling and relationship counseling, and they, it's very structured. I love it. That's how I work with couples is through the Gottman work and it's it's research based it's effective it's really awesome see how this would help individuals or help couples so can you go over those because i do have a lot of married mostly women that are listening to this but i think we're i'm at the age and most of my listeners at the age where our kids are grow if they're not already out of the house they're almost out of the house and you know the marriage becomes all front and center again, you know, yep. it should be front and center, but you know, your kids do kind of take over your life um, to some extent. So this is pretty interesting for the listeners out there to hear about this and to really think about your own relationships, especially your marriage and how this can help you. Yep. Oh man. I wish they taught this stuff in first grade. The whole world would be different, but we don't. And that's why I have a job. <laughs> so it's called the four relationship killers. And they actually call them the four horsemen of the apocalypse. It's a biblical term, but it's the four relationship killers of all relationships. It's not just marriages or romantic relationships. It could be parents and child relationships. It could be friend relationships. It could be pickleball partner relationships. These are the four killers that are involved in every single relationship there is, which is why it's so effective to teach. Because when I'm teaching couples these things, I usually say, this is not just for you two. You're going to have these issues in all of your relationships. So you want to learn these tools so that you're effective in all your relationships, not just this one. And then it gets them on board of, oh yeah, I do want to learn it for all of my relationships, not for my you know marriage that's falling apart. I want to learn it mm -hmm. for everybody, right? So the four killers have been researched. They researched thousands and thousands of couples and they've come up with these four killers that are in all relationships. And then they came up with the four anecdotes to all of the killers. So that's how I teach it is I teach the four killers and then I teach the four ways to to combat them. And it's not that good relationships don't have these. They do. It's that they catch them quicker and they start repairing them faster. So even in my own relationship, my partner and I, we've been together for 14 years. And when I first learned these, we started implementing them and we were horrible at them at first. But over the last six years that I've been practicing them, we can catch them faster and we can literally in the moment be like, oh, I just criticize you. Hold on. Let me do the other way, the antidote to criticism. And then in live time, we repair it right then. The problem is bad couples, the ones that are not effective, they don't catch it until later. It scars up and then they build up all this scar and this mistrust. And then they have to go back and repair it all in the past versus just repairing it in the moment. So the goal is, you know, First of all, you want to repair the things in the moment, but then over time, once you build trust in each other, because you do do the work in the moment is to go backwards, maybe in therapy or maybe outside of therapy and re rehash those old arguments that you used to have and say, okay, we didn't know any better back then, but now we do. If we had known what we know now, this is how I would have talked to you 
back then in that time. And then you repair that scar and then you move forward. So I love teaching them. So yeah. I'll just go through them real quickly and, and mm -hmm. take, take what you want. But the four killers, I'll start with the beginning. The first one is criticism. Um, I'll just say the four first. Criticism. Second one is defensiveness. The third one is contempt. And the fourth one is stonewalling. And I'll walk you through what they look like. A criticism is usually not happening in a relationship in the beginning. So you think of when you date, it's a honeymoon stage. You're all curious about each other. You're, oh, you know, everything about you is so wonderful and great. Tell me all the things about you. You're so curious. And there's no criticism going on in the beginning of a relationship. You're just so happy. But somewhere around like month three or month four, you've gotten to know each other a little bit more. And it might not be a direct criticism that comes out. It might be an indirect criticism. Like, hey, how come you put these socks over here? Which isn't a direct criticism, but what it does is it, now we are not a we anymore. It's a you is in that sentence. And whenever you have a you in a sentence, it makes it me versus you. You are no longer on a team anymore. And so when that happens, the egos flare up. Like all of a sudden when you hear, why did that sock get put here? Why did you put that sock here? Now you're going, wait, you wouldn't put that sock here? I thought we were on the same team here. And so then it leads you to the second one, which is defensiveness. And those two things go round and round. The first person either says a, a direct criticism, like you never do, you never listen to me or you never um, check in on me. Notice I'm saying you. And I'm also saying another bad thing, never, always is a nevers are bad to put in a sentence. <laughs> you want to say sometimes. Another quick trick is why and how come. Anytime you say why, it immediately puts the person's ego on guard. Like, hey, what do you mean why? Why not? Right? They're not listening to the problem anymore. They're listening to you're the problem. And, and I have a problem with you, right? So a criticism puts the other person's ego on defense. And just like a court of law, you have prosecution and defense. If the prosecution says you're a murderer, the defense is not listening to you're a murderer. They're sitting there trying to already spin it to I'm not a murderer. It was self-defense. They're already spinning it without listening to what the prosecution's saying. They're not listening anymore. And that's what happens in a dynamic of a couple. A criticism is given. The person receiving it is no longer listening to the problem that they're saying. Like, it's not about the sock on the floor. They're saying something's wrong with me. So I have to defend myself and make myself be a good person to them. So I'm going to say, well, I didn't, I didn't put the sock there, but you put the thing over there yesterday. Do you remember doing that? And they throw a criticism right back to defend themselves from being a bad person. Because all of our egos want is to be good girl, bad, mm -hmm. good girl, good boy, right? We all want to be good girl, good boy. And when somebody threatens that, our ego hates it. And so it wants to defend it. And so it's criticizing back. Round and round, those first two go. You throw a criticism, the other person defends and throws a criticism back, then they get defensive. Round and round, this whole cycle goes in the beginning of a relationship until it turns to the third one. And the third one is contempt. And contempt is considered the number one relationship pillar because once it gets to contempt, the mm. relationship is in trouble. No longer is it, I did a bad thing or you did a bad thing. Now it's, you are a bad person. Something is bad about your character. It's a character flaw that I don't like about you. What I think of with contempt, it's like a resentment towards the person's character. It's an eye-rolling sensation, a disgust about the person's character. And contempt is one of those things that's with you even when you're not around the person. Like you can think about your partner, or you can think about 
a politician and have contempt for them without being in their presence. And it's this eye rolling, oh God, they always do that. Or I have to go home and they're going to be sitting on the couch like they always do, right? It's a character flaw now that you don't like about their whole being. And that's why it's the number one killer because it sits with you with your when you're with them or when you're not with them. And biologically, what happens when you're in contempt, your amygdala, which is the fight, flight, freeze response in your brain, is giving you adrenaline and cortisol every time you think of that person. So biologically, your body is full of adrenaline and cortisol by the time you even walk home in the door. And what happens when you're full of adrenaline and cortisol, you're going to lead to the fourth killer, which is stonewalling faster. Because think about it. If you're tippy top with, with cortisol and, and you're stressed all the time thinking about the contempt you have for this person or the state of the world or a politician, if you're full of contempt and resentment and you walk in the door and the smallest little thing triggers you, let's say your partner left his coat on the floor or you see that there's no milk in the fridge, whatever. The smallest little thing when you're full of contempt is gonna set you over to stonewalling, which stonewalling is the fight, flight, freeze, or people please response, which is you're emotionally flooded. You are no longer in your rational, cool, calm state of mind. Stonewalling is when you shut down or you fight or you abandon the situation, you run away. And I see that a lot with couples. You're either a fighter, you're a fleer, or you're a freezer, right? A fighter yells, argues, screams, doesn't listen, is poking, poking, poking the other person. A fleer abandons, walks away, and they don't stay in the conversation, which feels like abandonment to the fighter, right? That causes a whole problem. And then the freezer is the person who feels trapped. They can't get out of the situation and they just shut down. They're there, but they're not there. They're emotionally checked out. And to the person who's fighting and yelling at them, it feels like abandonment again. So here we have this problem with relationships when it gets to the stonewalling part. Now it's not even about the problem anymore. They're not hearing each other. They're in this emotionally flooded amygdala state with cortisol and adrenaline running through their veins in the fight, flight, freeze state. They're not able to be cool and calm and rational. Those are basic how it leads to the fourth killer. It goes from criticism to defensiveness. All those things added up lead to contempt. And then you get to the stonewalling phase, which is where couples really, really do struggle because they're full of resentment towards each other. And the littlest things set them off about each other yeah. now. Right. And they're not in their part of the brain. You want to be in is the prefrontal cortex, which is your, your problem solving, rational, cool side of your brain, the part that you and I are in right now, listening to each other. And when you're in your amygdala state, you're in a, an emotionally flooded state. You're not able to process anything. The other person is saying anymore. Everybody is like, Please tell us the antidotes. <laughs> yeah. So I always start with the end in mind first. So because if you're in a state of stonewalling with your partner, it doesn't matter what you do with criticisms or defensivenesses or contempts because they're not even mm -hmm. emotionally available anymore. They're, they're flooded emotionally. So I always start with, if you're in stonewalling, start there first. And the Gottmans have come up with antidotes for these. And the antidote for stonewalling is to take a mutual timeout between five minutes and 24 hours. No more, no less. And the reason for that is when you're emotionally flooded, your amygdala has taken over. You've gotten a lot of cortisol and adrenaline running through your body. The purpose of cortisol and adrenaline is to fight the danger or to run away from the danger. So imagine the purpose of your amygdala is to keep you safe. And if your partner is the one that your amygdala is threatened by, you want to either 
I know this sounds weird, kill that thing or run away from that thing, right? That's what your amygdala is designed for. Or you freeze and that's a whole other beast. So what the Gottmans have found is in the research, they put a pulse oximeter on their couples in session. I do this with my couples too. I'll make them wear a Fitbit or we will take our heart rates in session actively. And they say that if, if your heart rate while you're sitting there is at 85 beats per minute or above, you are in your amygdala state. Wow. You are stonewalled. You should not be above 85 beats per minute just sitting there talking. So for me, I'm always wearing my my Fitbit right now. I'm at 77, which is high for me, but I'm excited about this. So I'm getting adrenaline and cortisol. But if I were to sense in session that my couples in session are getting flooded, I literally say, hey, let's do a heart rate check right now. And we time ourselves for 15 seconds. I make them take it old fashioned way by their neck. And then we multiply it by four. Generally, one of them is over 85 beats per minute. And the other one might be really, really low, depending on if they're a fighter fighter or a fleer. Fight flight is 85 beats per minute or above. That's how you know you're in fight flight. But freeze is different. Freeze actually has a lower heart rate. It looks like a resting heart rate. And the reason is, is because the freeze is, is designed to protect you from pain when you're trapped in pain. It's what the depressive, that's what depression is. It's a dysfunctional free state and that's what depression comes from. And the heart rate really, really lowers in that state because it's trying to protect itself from inevitable pain and possible death is really what the brain is doing. So when I see a couple who has a fighter and a freezer, so the fighter sitting there yelling and berating, the freezer is sitting there like there, but not there, they're kind of dissociated. I'm checking their heart rates. The fighter is above 85. They're usually at 112. The freezer heart rate is usually around 65, 70. It's really low, but they feel yucky. They're not happy. So the difference between the freeze state and a resting heart rate, the freeze state and a relaxed state of mind is you will have a low heart rate, but you will feel yucky. That's how you know you're in the freeze state. And if you're in the freeze state, you're probably disassociated and you're, you're checked out. You're not there. So Back to the stonewalling. The antidote to stonewalling is a, a mutual timeout between five minutes and 24 hours. No more, no less. And you literally say, hey, I'm flooded. I'm looking at my heart rate right now. I'm at 95 beats per minute. And I don't want to be in this state talking to you about this important thing. Can we take a mutual timeout? And as a couple, you agree that that's okay to do. And you take the timeout. And in your timeout, you cannot think about the fight. You cannot think about the contempt. Because all that does to your amygdala is keep revving it up. You're going to come back just as flooded as you did before. So it's really important in your timeout to have purposeful regulation going on. I like to do breathing techniques. Breathing through the nose, a five, five, six count is really helpful in lowering the heart rate because when you breathe through your nose, deep, deep breaths like that, it tells the amygdala that you're safe. Think about it. If a tiger was right in front of you about to eat you, you wouldn't sit there and go, <laughs> you wouldn't. You only do that when you're safe. If you're sitting in front of a tiger about to eat you, you would mouth breathe right. very fast. You'd be like, <gasps> and that's why when we work out, same thing, we breathe through our mouth very fast. It gives us the adrenaline and cortisol to get a good workout. That's the purpose. But if we wanted to regulate our heart rate, we would nose breathe, deep nose breathing. So part of what I ask my clients to do in session when we take a mutual timeout is let's do three or four rounds of five, five, six breathing through our nose. And literally they'll pull their watch. Five, five, six, meaning inhale for five, hold for five, breathe out for six. Is that what that means? Yep. Yep. All through the nose. Yep. If you do it through the mouth, the amygdala doesn't recognize that you're safe. Only through the nose do you recognize that you're safe. And another quick hack. 
to turning the amygdala off is eating. That's why eating is so comfortable. You only eat yeah, that makes safe. sense. So again, back to the tiger about to eat. Yeah, back to the tiger about to eat you. You wouldn't sit there and finish your bowl of cereal <laughs> no. if the tiger's about to eat you, right? You only finish your cereal when you're safe. So that's why we have a problem with eating in this country is because it feels so comforting because your amygdala turns off. Eating is a good brain hack, but I wouldn't recommend just going to eat your feelings away when you're flooded. So a quick way to do that, there's a lot of um, vagus nerve resets, like swallowing. Swallowing gives the amygdala the impression you're eating. And so it will help you reset your vagus nerve. But also chewing gum gives the impression to your amygdala that you are eating and it will calm down. It will, it will lower your heart rate. So sometimes I'll ask my clients, bring in some gum. If you really can't stay regulated, just chew some gum while we're talking, or I'll have them just do some breath work every once in a while when they can sense that their heart rate is up. It's really good for pickleball too. (laughs) By the way, my, uh, I'm at 60 beats per minute right now. So I'm in a good state, I guess. (laughs) Yeah, that's good. (laughs) Let's see where I'm at. I'm at 83. I must be really excited. The one talking and educating. So (laughs) if I was giving a speech or doing something like that, or I've had times where if I'm just giving the podcast, doing a solo episode, I mean, I'm, I'm like worked up into like a full sweat. So (laughs) yep, I would be, you know, one of the things you could probably do is what I do with individuals is have do a week's worth of heart rate tracking just to see what your body is doing. See what your brain is giving you hormonally. Like write a little log. If you have a Fitbit, you could just literally look down and be like, oh, I'm 85 beats per minute. What am I doing or thinking right now? And then write that down. And and you'll start to see a pattern. When I'm sitting watching TV, for some people, that's very relaxing. For me, I hate it. I need to move. When I'm sitting watching TV, my heart rate is really high. When my partner sits and watch TV, it's probably very low, right? When I'm out playing pickleball, obviously it's high because you're excited and you're having fun. When I'm seeing clients, it depends on what I'm hearing. Sometimes when I'm hearing very traumatic things, my amygdala does not know it's not happening to me. It will think that threat is still happening and it will give me adrenaline and cortisol. And my role as a therapist is to to stay regulated so that I can be there in my prefrontal cortex for them. So really a lot of nose breathing during session helps me stay regulated for them because I cannot be in my amygdala state when I'm working with them. Okay. So you talked about what to do in the, in that final step, which was the stonewalling, right? So what are the ones if we back it up to the next or to the previous stages? Once you work on your emotional regulation with stonewalling, then you can work on your contempt. And contempt is an individual work. You cannot work, you can, but I wouldn't recommend it if you're in contempt with somebody. Work with the partner that you're in contempt for on your contempt. The antidote for contempt is gratitude. And a lot of people hate when I say that because the person they hate right then is not the person they want to feel gratitude for. So what I usually start with is the biology of why that works. When you're in contempt, you're in a lot of adrenaline and cortisol, and that's obviously very stressful for your body. When you're in gratitude, though, you're getting those good feeling hormones like oxytocin, dopamine, serotonin, endorphins. Your whole body chemistry changes when you're in gratitude. And the thing about gratitude is it's not a natural thing your brain wants to do. That's why it's a practice. Your brain naturally wants to lean towards negative bias, which means when you wake up in the morning, your brain is already on alert for anything bad that can happen to you. It's looking for negative things all the time that could hurt you or threaten you. And so it's constantly in that amygdala state waiting for something bad to happen. And if you're constantly allowing it to do that, you will be full of adrenaline and cortisol. So part of it is switching and practicing gratitude 
which is positive bias, looking for the positive things in, in your day-to-day so that you change the chemistry of your body. And imagine if you practiced gratitude all day and you went home and you saw the sock on the floor or you saw the coat on the, not on the rack, you would have more patience and understanding if you're full of oxytocin, the love hormone and serotonin and endorphins. If you have those hormones running through your body, you have more patience for those things, right? But gratitude practice is very hard. I, I recommend to my clients to start with what I call a warm fuzzy list. And I have it on my phone. It's a running list that I keep track of. And I start with my five senses because it's hard to deny your amygdala, your five senses. It's very real to the amygdala, what your five senses feel. So in my warm fuzzy list, I literally, when I want to practice, I'll say, what smells good to me? What gives me warm fuzzies that smell good? So I'll be like freshly baked cookies, new babies, puppy breath, you know, the ocean. And I just write those things down. And in thinking of those things in my senses, I literally am getting that dopamine, serotonin, and those different hormones inside. So the things that I hear that are really beautiful, I'm writing that on my warm fuzzy list too. And the more I add to that, the more I'm practicing gratitude. And I'm also not practicing gratitude for the person I have contempt for. I'm, I'm thought distracting. I'm not thinking about them. I'm thinking about the things that make me feel good, right? So the antidote to contempt is gratitude. And I would start with a warm fuzzy list for something, not try to have gratitude for your partner because that's not going to go very well. Your little gremlins inside of your mind are going to be like, oh, please, totally, <laughs> you totally. know? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> it's not going to work. So then does that then move towards yeah. eventually trying to think of what your gratitude towards that person or the gratitude practice is just always separate? I think eventually you can move it towards your partner. Once you guys start working on your communication and you mm-hmm. do all the work together to not do the four killers, once you build that trust in each other, of course, you're going to start having mm-hmm. gratitude for each other. Of course, you're going to start seeing and appreciating them for doing the antidotes mm-hmm. rather than the killers, right? You're going to start being more aware of when they're choosing a different path than choosing the killers, right? That is gratitude in itself. The fact that they would not choose to give you a criticism, which I haven't told you the antidote for that yet, but if they choose the antidote for criticism versus criticism, you're going to start Absolutely. feeling gratitude for them. You're going to be like, oh, that's so sweet. They right. did that instead Absolutely. of a criticism. <laughs> so, so then let's keep going. Keep going. <laughs> yeah. Keep going backwards. The antidotes to the first two I teach together because they go hand in hand. You don't get defensive without a criticism. So it starts with the, the antidote for criticism is called a gentle startup. And it's literally an equation. It's I feel blank when blank happens. So I'll give you an example. Let's just do dishes. You never do the dishes right. That's a flat out criticism. It has the word you in it. It has never in it. And another horrible thing is to say, right. You never do the dishes right as if there's a right way to do the dishes. (laughs) So that's a flat out criticism. If I were to change that to a gentle startup, it would be, I feel overwhelmed when the dishes are not done. Notice I take the you out of it. I make the problem about the dishes not being done. And I'm also adding a feeling word, which cannot be denied. It cannot be fought. A feeling cannot be fought. I feel overwhelmed when dishes are not done. And that happens whether I'm with you or living with 10 other people. I feel overwhelmed when the dishes are not done. So as the receiver of that gentle startup in the defendant state, you can see the problem versus the criticism about you as a person. And hopefully you know about gentle startups. So you know what that is, that it took effort for that person to come up with that because it is hard. I often think about it not like a math problem because math problems have one end and they're done. It's more like an English paper and you edit and edit and edit. 
A gentle startup is something that you cannot just do and be done with. It is something you'll know by their facial expression. You'll know by their body language, whether it was right or whether it was a good one. So with my partner, I literally have tried gentle startups sometimes and I will accidentally put a you in there, for example. Like, I feel disappointed that you were late to the party. I accidentally put a you in there. And right away, I noticed that, oh, they're defensive. So right there, if I notice they're defensive, I will also, I will say, hey, hold on, hold on. Let me try that again. I can see that didn't hit right. And I edit it and yeah. I try again. That's how good you can get in a relationship is to repair as fast as you can. But let's say I didn't catch it. Let's say now my partner's responsibility is the defended person. And the antidote for defensiveness is giving the benefit of the doubt to the person that originally criticized that they're not intending to hurt you if they weren't so flooded. So I need to be curious. The short version of that is stay curious. When you're defensive, you are not curious. You are immediately coming up with your argument, the thing you want to say back. You're not curious about their experience. You're not curious about why they're upset. You turn off curiosity when you're defensive. So what I literally say as a mantra in my mind when I feel defensive is be curious, Michelle, be curious, be curious, be curious, stay interested. What is this about? They would not say this this way if they weren't so upset. Help them. And sometimes as the defended person, I will say the gentle startup for them. So let's say my partner comes to me and says, hey, you didn't do the dishes last night. Well, yeah, that hurts my ego, right? I'm immediately defensive. And my work is to catch when I'm defensive and go, ooh, deep breath, big old nose breath, right? Stay curious. And maybe even say the gentle startup back for them. So I say, you're disappointed that the dishes were not done. So I say, take the you out of it. I put a feeling word with it. I'm focusing on the problem of the dishes and they will be able to say, yeah, I am upset the dishes are not done and they'll still be upset. And right there, you can get more defensive, but your role is be curious, be curious, be curious. Okay, how can I help? What do we need to do to help the situation? Well, we need to do the dishes. Okay, let's go do the dishes. Not getting defensive is probably the hardest one, I think because it's attacking you, right? You're the defended one. You want to defend yourself and throw something right back. And it happens so often, directly or indirectly. Like even just, hey, why is this thing here? That's so indirect. It's not a full criticism. It's such a small, subtle, indirect criticism. It might not even catch your defensiveness, but you'll become more and more aware of them the more you are mindful of what a criticism, direct or indirect, looks like. And then your role is stay curious. What is this really about? This is not about me. This is about frustration mm -hmm. about a thing. And what is the thing we need to fix? Absolutely. Oh my gosh. So interesting. I know everybody has to be thinking about their own relationships and how they are reacting or how their what their role is in that relationship. And if they're the <laughs> defender or are they the accuser or are they the, which one? Yeah. And I think yeah. what's really important on this is that it can't just be one of you going, Oh, I'm going to work on this. Like you both have to know what's happening. You know, one of you can't right. be just working on these four killers and, and trying to correct them without the other one, even knowing what's happening. I mean, that, that's, that just would not yep. work. What I would recommend for that. I tell my individuals that come to me when I tell them these things, I, I say exactly what you just said. It's hard when only one person is doing the work. The other person doesn't even recognize you're doing a gentle startup. The other person isn't even recognizing you're not being defensive. They're just doing their thing, right? So what I would recommend is if you can, in a gentle way, say, this is what I recommend anybody to do. Hey, I just learned this thing. I learned these things about relationship killers. Do you mind if I share them with you? 
they say, yeah. You share them with them and you say, you take accountability for your part. You say, hey, I noticed because I just learned these things that I have a problem with criticizing you and I get defensive sometimes. And then it leads me to have contempt, which sometimes is hard to admit. And then I get flooded and I stonewall. And I want to work on that. Is there anything that you want to tell me that I need to work on as well? So you're asking for feedback from them. It's going to be hard to hear, right? You don't want to hear the things that piss them off about you. But they'll, but because you're taking accountability first, they're going to, maybe not right then, but they're going to walk away from that conversation going, wow, well, that was cool. I wonder what mm -hmm. I need to work on. And now, not only have you educated them about the four killers, but you've also owned your part of what's hurt them, which feels good. And then you're, you're modeling, owning and taking accountability for the problems so that they want to do the mod. They want to do the same thing. You're modeling what you want to see, but you're not asking them, what do you want to work on? Cause that would yeah. make them defensive. You're coming to them with this great information and you're just telling them about it. And then you want to own your part and let them just sit with it. And then they can own it right then, or they might own it a little bit later, but it will, it will, it will sit with them and they'll come back and they'll be like, Oh, I noticed that she did a gentle yeah, startup. That's, cool. That's awesome. I think that is like the best advice we've heard on the podcast. I love it. I love it so much. So thank you for all, thank <laughs> you for that. So you mentioned that mm -hmm. you were thinking about writing a book about the re relationship of pickleball partners. Was that what you had said? That would be fascinating. And I yeah. would um, highly encourage you to do that because pickleball or any sport is like a life lesson, I guess. So <laughs> it would be applicable mm -hmm. to a lot of things. Totally. So that is very, very cool. So tell yeah. me, Michelle, getting mm -hmm. back, speaking of pickleball, getting back to pickleball, what, like, what are your goals with, with pickleball? I'm going through a little bit of a, a pickleball renaissance right now because my partner that I've been playing with for a year and I were playing one more tournament this weekend together and they were going to kind of play the field. I'm trying to figure out what I want. I've always thought I want to go pro, but everybody wants that, right? And I'm trying to find the balance between fun and co and being competitive and wanting to continue to get better. The more competitive I got, the more anxiety I felt, the more unhappy I felt, the more uh, unfulfilled I felt after a match. It would it would get in my head like, this is not going to make me go pro. This is not good enough to go pro. I was constantly thinking about the next step versus enjoying the moment. And so right now I'm kind of in this space of how can I find the balance again of just enjoying the process and and having fun with it and enjoying my partners for whatever we get done. And, you know, I'm so used to just going to tournaments and getting a medal and that's the goal is to get the medal, but to back up and drill and just enjoy the game again. I think that that's where I'm kind of in right now and wherever that leads me is great. And probably my body's going to thank me for it. Cause it's gotten a lot of beat down in the last year. So just more drilling, I think is what I'm heading to do. And that's what the pros say is just add more drilling, less rec play, more drilling, and just see where it goes from there. Do less tournaments. I think I did a tournament almost every weekend last year. Holy cow. Yeah. That is a ton. A lot. And when you're playing in tournaments, are you, you're just playing in doubles with your female partner, correct? I did some mixed more towards the end of last year. Cause it was, you know, it's a better deal. Yeah, absolutely. The more events you do. Totally. And once I figured out it was a better deal to play more pickleball, which everybody wants, I was like, okay. I started doing singles. My first singles tournament was two weeks ago in Arizona. I am not a tennis player whatsoever. I'm a volleyball and basketball player at heart. 
my body has never felt so tired and so beat down after that singles tournament. I got bronze in a three five, which is great for me. I'm not a runner. I'm not a, that it was a lot of running, but I was proud of myself and it was a, a, a fun, you know, they say that if you do singles, it'll really help your, your drives and stuff like that. And, and to place the ball a little bit better, which Amazing. I found that it did. So I'll probably stick to doing singles maybe once every other month, but I don't think my body can handle it more than that. <laughs> For the singles, how many games did you have to play in that tournament? In that tournament, I think I played seven, seven matches of, of two out of That's three. Yeah, lot. it was a lot. Wow. And you know, when you mentioned you were a volleyball yeah. player, um, if anyone out there listening that is a former volleyball player, that makes a really good pickleball player. In my opinion, I've played with a couple of ladies that um, down here in Florida and up in Illinois that were former volleyball players and they can freaking smash it. They just have really good, their hand-eye coordinations and mate is really good. They can just get a lot of shots. And mm-hmm. um, of course, you know, they they can jump and they just take up a like the space that they can cover. I don't know. They can, you know, they can move and man, oh, yeah. can they smash? <laughs> you know, I, I find it very similar to two on two volleyball, the way that the movement is on a, on a two on two uh-huh. sand volleyball, for example, one person back has to mm-hmm. move the other person back. Like the movement is similar and the footwork is similar. The only thing I find that's hard is with volleyball, you get three, t- three touches per side. So it's that makes sense. slower a little bit, you know, you get more time to think how yeah. you want to attack them. Right. Versus pickleball is like, bam, 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 bam. I know. And it's a little faster. (laughs) So it's so, so addicting. I love it. Okay. I have one more question for you because I was reading, this is what really caught my eye and the Facebook forum that you and I are both in was you talking about your, your health history and that you actually have MS. So how was, Mm -hmm. were you just recently diagnosed? Is this something that's new in your life? And how is, how is this going then with playing this much pickleball and being so athletic? So I got diagnosed in 2017 and it was actually Labor Day weekend. Um, I was probably 60 pounds heavier than I am right now, drinking, eating, partying, doing all my stuff, you know, not, not in a horrible, horrible way, but just eating whatever I wanted. And the way I found out is Labor Day weekend, my feet started going numb. I thought it was because I had a pinched nerve or something, but then it it crept up to my knees the next day. And then the next day it was up to my waist and I couldn't feel myself pee which really scared me. I was like, what the heck is going on? So I went to UCLA, the ER, and I told them what was going on that I couldn't feel from the waist down. Immediately, they took me to the ER. A team of neurologists came in and they were just like poking and prodding me and doing all these tests on me and stuff. And they did an MRI and actually did like four or five MRIs. So I was in that hole for five hours, but they found all these lesions in my brain and my spinal cord. And as you know, MS is basically your immune system eating your, the sheath around your nerves. So they're exposed nerves. And over time you lose, you know, functioning, you can be paralyzed, you can Mm -hmm. wobble around. They have like all these other symptoms, brain fog, all this stuff. You lose a lot of function because of your brain is just being torn down. Your nervous system is being torn down. And mine happened to be the reason why I went numb from my legs down was there's a lesion in my spinal cord that was inflamed and it stopped me from being able to feel from my waist down. And had I kept it going, it probably would have gotten worse. And maybe some of my functioning in my, you know, in my liver and my internal system was going to shut down. So the good thing was, is I caught it quicker. They put me on steroid shots, that lesion calmed down. I got feeling back over, you know, two or three weeks, my feelings started coming back. So that was good. And I've had a couple of relapses here and there, but 
I started reading a book, The Wall Protocol, which is Dr. Terry Walls. She is, she used to be an, she is an internist. She's a doctor. She got MS, progressive MS, and she was actually in a, a wheelchair doing all the things that doctors told her to do, taking medication and all this stuff with MS. She kept getting worse and worse and worse where she couldn't even walk anymore. And after a while, she said, you know what? F it. I know what the body needs because I'm an internist and I know at the molecular level what the body needs. And so she started studying diet and how it affects the mitochondria of your cells and the mitochondria of your cells are the energy house, right? And when she started eating the things that the mitochondria loved, which is basically paleo, Mm -hmm. she calls it the wall protocol, which is the diet that she made, but it mostly is paleo eating leafy greens and grass-fed beefs and meats and stuff like that. Um, but getting rid of mostly all gluten, yeah. dairy, and sugar and, al- and alcohol, anything yes. that's inflammatory. Cause that's what they say. Diet is really key to getting rid of anything inflammatory. Most chronic diseases are from inflammation. And once I started reading that book, I was like, you know what? MS is going to, it scares the hell out of me. I, at the time was 38 years old. And I was like thinking by the time I'm 45, I'm going to be in a wheelchair. And I was scared to death. And I was like, I will do whatever it takes not to be in a wheelchair. This lady ended up being the first person to reverse MS. She's walking, she's working out. She's just by diet. She doesn't do medications anymore. And so she, her, her diet has been studied by many, many scientists now. And a lot of people have done it and followed it. And they've gotten rid of a lot of autoimmune disorders because they follow that diet. So I did that. I started cutting out dairy, gluten, and sugar. I mostly eat paleo. I got rid of drinking and dropped shoot 60 pounds started working i i was always a workouter i just never could lose the weight because i ate whatever i was inflamed right and i've kept ms at bay just with the simple basics of eat sleep move eating the right things with the wall protocol sleeping eight to nine hours a a night my sleep protocol is on point i'm in bed by nine asleep by 9 30 every single night wake up at 7 30 Nine and a half hours of sleep every day. I cannot wait for my clients to hear this because this is what I preach to women all the time. We talk about whole food nutrition. That's what I call that as, you know, getting back to eating real food and getting rid of the ultra processed foods. I always tell people, if you can look at your plate and if it was food that if it, if you look at it and go, did this come from the ground? Like, was it grown in the ground or did this have a mother? And if you can answer yes to that, like, okay, we're, we're on the right path. Yeah. I love Did that. it have a Did mom have a or was it grown <laughs> in the ground? Like just ask yourself those two things. And that is like, you're eating real food. As soon as you start eating food that was made in a manufacturing yeah. plant, like we've got just your, your body is inflamed. And I've just had so many women that have, I have one of my friends that she joined my program and within like a month or so she stopped taking ibuprofen. She was taking daily ibuprofen for her joints and she was able to stop doing it just from getting rid of so much of the processed foods that were, you know, in her diet before, which is, and like I always say, the standard American diet that stands it's SAD sad. I mean, that's like the easiest way to remember it. It's awful. So I think that's just incredible that you're able to do that move the food you're eating and the sleep and sleep and sleep is yes. And sleep is like the most (laughs) underrated instrument in your tool belt when it comes to fat loss, when it comes to your health and so many levels. It's so, so key. When I work with my clients on setting up their protocols, so eat, sleep, move protocols, because your gut is a big part of depression and anxiety. Whatever is in your gut, that's where serotonin is made. And so if you're eating crap, your serotonin is not made. So you're going to be depressed and anxious. But a big part of it is sleep. And I always say, 
your day doesn't start in the morning. Your day starts the night before. Because if you get a crappy night of sleep, you're gonna you're basically saying, I'm gonna have a mediocre day tomorrow. It's not gonna be a good day. So you have to think your bookend of your day starts the night before. And how are you setting up your day the night before? Are you watching TV? Are you playing on your phone? All this stuff. Or are you really truly getting eight to nine hours of sleep, which is what your brain needs to settle? I think of the brain like a like a snow globe. All day long, you're shaking it up. The only time it gets to settle is your sleep. And if you're only getting six to seven hours of sleep, it never gets the chance that. to settle. And so it's constantly on in adrenaline and cortisol mode. The other thing I was gonna tell you about eating because you preach this to your clients, this will be a huge thing because I have MS and because I have that lesion in my spinal cord that when it gets inflamed, I literally can feel the paralysis going on in my legs again. So when I get gluten, this is the one thing mm-hmm. I stick to is gluten. I know for a fact that gluten is inflammatory because if gluten is snuck into like a soup or something that I have at a restaurant or something like that, within 15 minutes, my feet and my legs start going numb because that lesion in my spinal cord gets inflamed and it starts that whole process again. I can guarantee you that's what's happening to everybody else seeding gluten. They just don't have a lesion in their spinal cord to be like a radar to tell you, hey, you're inflamed right now. They just feel crappy, you know? But I'm here to tell you it's true. All these things are so inflammatory and I can feel it. I, I, I consider multiple sclerosis a blessing in my life. It is horrible if it's not treated, but I've kept it at bay and it is a constant reminder of these basic fundamentals of eat, sleep, move. And I have a big, strong why of why I want to keep to it because I don't want to relapse and I don't want to have that stuff happen to me. I want to stay as, you know, pickleballed as I can for the rest of my life. And so I make those things a priority. So if that motivates them, they should do that. Oh my goodness. Okay. Michelle, I kept you for so long, but this has been like one of my favorite conversations ever. So I really can't thank you enough. Um, tell everybody how they could, if people yeah. want to follow you on social media, are you okay with giving out your um, info there sure. or how, if you have a website or anything like that? Sure. My website for my therapy is perfectlyimperfectly.com. That's how you can reach me as a therapist in California. I also do life coaching and Instagram. I love it so much. I have three accounts. <laughs> I'll tell you my three. My first one is my professional one for my therapy. And I talk about all this easy move stuff and all the mental health stuff. That one is perfectly and perfectly counseling. And I have a lot of info on there, but my pickleball account, I'll give you that one is dink lady. All I post on there is about pickleball. That's where I put everything pickleball related there. And I have my personal account, but we'll leave that at bay. <laughs> so I have three accounts. <laughs> I wish you all the best in your pickleball tournaments, finding a new partner, like all of your goals that you have on your health journey as well. And really just can't thank you enough for that. I feel like a lot of relationships were really blessed today by hearing what you had to tell us about those four relationship killers and then, you know, the fixers. So that was amazing. So thank you so much. Yeah. Yeah, Thanks for having me. It's been fun talking about it. I want to tell you about a free workout that I have that is specific for getting in shape for the pickleball courts. This workout is going to help you with your speed and agility, and it's also going to make sure that you stay safe moving in all of those planes of motion. It's not often that we're moving laterally or lunging forwards, backwards, diagonally. So this is a great workout to work in those different planes of motions, but in a controlled environment so that when you get out to the courts, your feet know what to do. You're feeling really confident. Plus you're going to get in great shape to get this workout. Just go to the show description for today's show description, and it has a link that will take you there.